Thank you so much. Um, naturally, I'll be doing this off an iPad rather than reading off paper, um, and so naturally something will go wrong. Uh, while talking of uh, early computers, just as a matter of linguistic interest, Commodore PET um, wasn't a great success around the world, partly because PET in France means fart, and so uh, <laughs> they changed it to um, Vic, which in German is Fick, which I mean, it does, probably doesn't take too much imagination for you to know what that means. So having had a fart and a fuck, they eventually just called it the um, 770 and the 990. It's much safer to avoid words when you're traveling around. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> what do I say here as, as an inaugural lecture? Well, my most goodness of gracious is, um, in all my long, futile, and wildly reprehensible career, um, I've had the good fortune to have had many honors uh, and awards uh, heaped on my unworthy, tousled, gently silvering, but as yet, as yet not male pattern balding head. Um, in 1989, for example, I was named Chittleborough and Morgan of Savile Row's Trouser Wearer of the Year. Uh, <laughs> stiff competition from Lancashire and England's Michael Atherton that year. There was a man who could wear a trouser. Um, what else? I held the coveted title Most Mentally Disordered Britain from 1996 to 2011, such that um, uh, they allowed me to keep the cup. Um, and it's where I store my medication. In 2009, I beat off Rupert Everett and Ian McKellen to become Gay Icon of the Year. When I say beat off, um, <laughs> now, now behave. Um, anyway, whatever trophies and accolades that have been bestowed upon me, none of them comes close, comes anywhere near close to that of being, having made an honorary fellow of my college in Cambridge. No, um, we aren't going to make cheap other place remarks here. I mean, of course, this is the one right here and now, um, that of being appointed the Cameron Mackintosh Visiting Professor of Contemporary Theatre. Um, as I'm sure you know, it all stems from Sir Cameron's um, uh, extraordinary generosity in using his philanthropic trust to, um, to make the grant that created this unique um, annual chair. It's all of a piece with his passion for bringing forward young talent in the theatre world that he's so luminous, luminously enriched himself for the last 40 years. The tenure that I am now tremblingly accepting has been held by some of the greatest names in theatre. Sir Trevor Nunn, Sir, Sir Michael Codron, who is here this evening, Stephen Sondheim, for the heaven's sake, um, Sir Ian McKellen, Philip Lloyd, Thelma Holt, Harry Styles, Sir Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Christopher Biggins. The list is almost true. Um, naturally, I have to ask myself what I can bring to this position that might have anything like as much value as that brought by my so much more distinguished predecessors. My life in theatre has been an unusual one. Um, literally, one week ago, I was min stalking um, manfully across the stage of the Belasco Theatre uh, on Broadway giving my final performance as Malvolio in Twelfth Night. Uh, 32 and a half years ago, I was at the Edinburgh Fringe for the third year in a row, but for the first time as a writer-performer, along with Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, Tony Slattery and others, in a university comedy review that had the good fortune to win what was then the first Perrier Award. It's now called something else, I can't know, the Magnetum Southern Sliding Patio Doors Award for <laughs> Comedy Excellence or something, or the 
tenor lady don't laugh too hard award or something. Um, whatever. It, it, was a, it was a door opener, um, um, but I stand before uh, any of those here in the audience uh, who hope to be working and playing with me to say that I can't open that door or any door like it for you. I can't make you famous. I can't write a review for you that uh, you take to Edinburgh and which wins you awards that lead you to becoming a professional stand-up or comic actor or writer. No more can I devise more serious works in collaboration with you which will guarantee you fame um, and West End or fringe production as a, and a lifetime as a theatrical figure. Um, fame is simply a byproduct of a profession whose highest ideal is to entertain, enlighten, enthrall, and stimulate the minds and emotions of audiences. But if fame is what you pursue, I'm afraid it's X Factor or Britain's Got Talent for you. Let fame that all hunt after in their lives live registered upon our brazen tombs, as um, the King of Navarre, or someone who sounds very like him, uh, says at the opening of, of Love Labour's Lost. If you're looking for fame, you've come very much to the wrong shop in terms of this um, annual professorship. Um, there's an old joke. How do you get an elephant off the stage? You can't. It's in his blood. Um, some of you, oh, how I wish it was all of you, um, will know the Powell and Pressburger masterpiece of a film, The Red Shoes, which gives its title to this uh, uh, lecture, rather pretentiously, you may feel. Um, although, of course, there's a David Bowie quote put on your red shoes. Fun enough, only on Monday this week, I was at the unveiling of a blue plaque in London to Powell and Pressburger. They lived and worked in Gloucester Place and Dorset House together for many, many years and produced the best British films ever made. And I'm even including David Lean in saying that. Um, it was the greatest film partnership in British history. Um, they happened to be complete heroes also to Martin Scorsese, who was present at the unveiling as well, along with Michael, Powell, Michael Powell's widow, Thelma Schoonmaker, who has edited all of uh, Martin Scorsese's films since Raging Bull. Thelma Schoonmaker, you see Thelma Holt, you're not the greatest artistic Thelma in the world since Thelma Ritter died. There are two of you. Um, um, Thelma is an anagram of Hamlet, by the way, which is of no particular interest. Um, but on Monday, when I mentioned to Thelma Schoonmaker that I was coming to Oxford for this gig, uh, she reminded me of a moment in the film The Red Shoes. It's a film set in the world of ballet uh, with the great, great Anton Walbrook. Um, if you want to see film acting at its absolute best, um, then you should see the original of Patrick Hamilton's Gaslight, not the Hollywood one with Ingrid Bergman, but the original British version. Um, uh, good though that is the, the, Hollywood, the Hollywood one, the British one is mind-blowing, and Anton Walbrook is a mind-blowing actor, and it always astonishes me when I meet people who haven't heard of him or realize how great he was. Um, and he plays, anyway, I'm losing my thread a little here because we should be talking about the red shoes. He plays um, Boris Lermontov, uh, a kind of Diaghilev figure, as in Sergei Diaghilev, you know, the great impresario who discovered the dancer Nijinsky and commissioned artists and composers well, well ahead of their time, like Debussy and uh, Picasso and Stravinsky um, for the Ballet Russe that he took around France and Europe. <clears throat> he was gay, as it happens, which is odd, because, as we know, um, there aren't any gay Russians. Uh, it's, it's a <laughs> totally Western tradition. It's a very odd. I don't know how that happened. Um, narratively, the Red Shoes 
very clearly mirrors uh, much of the culturally seismic Diaghilev Ballet Rouge seasons in Paris and over Europe. But the scene in the film, Thelma, reminded me of Thelma Schoolmaker, that is not Thelma Holt. Um, if it had been Thelma Holt, I wouldn't have been able to tell the story because I can never understand Thelma Holt. Just get on with it, Stephen. Just those, those who know Thelma will know what I mean, including Thelma. Um, uh, the, the scene Thelma Schoonmaker uh, reminded me of is early on in the film um, where the heroine, Moira Shearer, is in the audience of the ballet um, and is guided in the interval by her ambitious mother towards Anton Walbrook. Oh, Mr. Lermontov the mother gushes, wrapping the poor man on the shoulder with her fan. Um, do please take my daughter on in your corps de ballet. She's so terrifically good. Walbrook turns a weary head towards them, looks Moira Shearer up and down, um, and says, why do you want to dance? And Moira Shearer says, oh, well, you know, I've, I've always been considered good at it, and I do enjoy it, and I think I can make a career out of it. And without a word, Walbrook turns his back and walks away to an accompaniment um, that only a thwarted British stage mother could do properly. Well, really? Um, and then we see the reverse shot, which is tight on Moira Shearer's face. And she registers a marvelous expression, um, quite hard to describe. And is it uh, fury at Walbrook's rudeness in just walking away? It seems to be something else. Her, her eyes are sparkling and her lips tighten, and she clearly is resolved upon something. And then she starts to move very quickly towards Walbrook, who is disappearing. Um, and this time, it's she who taps him on the shoulder. And he turns, and he murmurs in a faintly annoyed, wonderful Germanic accent that he had, um, I have no need of any new dancers in my corps de ballet, and turns away again. And no, says Shearer, it's not that. I just wanted to put something right. What I told you before was complete nonsense. I don't want to dance, and I don't enjoy it. It's just that I have to dance. I was born to dance and to do nothing else. And he looks into her and says, rehearsal studios at Paddington at 8 o'clock. Don't be a second late. It's a rather wonderful moment. Um, naturally, Shearer becomes the prima ballerina of the company and the great star. And I won't tell you the tragic and um, astonishing ending of the film if you don't know it. Well, the how do you get an elephant off the stage um, joke might have got got across the same idea more compactly, but there's another point here. The film is based, as you might have guessed, on the horrifically dark Hans Christian Andersen fairy story in which a girl puts on a pair of red shoes uh, whose ribbons magically tie themselves around her ankles, and once they're tied on, she cannot stop dancing. She dances and dances until her feet bleed, and it even gets amputated. I mean, it's, quite, it's a really dark, dark story, um, um, and she dies. And that itself is a clear kind of metaphor um, that says something about artistic vocation. Neither Anderson nor Powell or Pressburger nor I are saying that all art is suffering and addiction and a fixation from which there is no escape, though many and indeed probably most artists have felt that that is the case. The composer Rossini was an exception. Um, he made so much money out of his music that sim he simply retired at the age of 38 and lived happily another 38 years indulging in his favorite passion, which was food. He was a great amateur chef as well as a gourmand. And the um, noble dish Tornados Rossini is named after him, um, created by the great Carême, or possibly by Escoffier. Um, culinary historians 
are undecided on, on the matter and have fights about it in public, um, much as they do here about the Schleswig-Holstein question or the um, Albigensian crusade, for example. So um, there are people who can give up acting. There are, um, uh, and are, uh, or writing for theater, or they can do it in a, in a heartbeat. Um, I don't know many of them, um, I think it's fair to say that they are the exception, not the rule, that 83 years old, the great peerless Stephen Sondheim still daily rhymes and composes on the piano. My 82-year-old friend, William Goldman, who wrote the screenplays for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Marathon Man, All the President's Men, Princess Bride, Misery, to name just a few, still gets up at 8 every morning uh, and taps away at the keyboard. Yes, I know the man who wrote the words, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. <laughs> Life has been very kind to me, inconceivably kind. To resume our theme, Verdi wrote uh, his great buffer uh, masterpiece, Falstaff, when he was 80. Don't expect Alan Bennett or Tom Stoppard to stop writing plays, or, or Nick Heitner to stop directing just because he stepped down from the national. And certainly don't expect Cameron to stop producing shows anytime soon. He has, he won't mind me saying, enough money to indulge in his passion for seafaring in Grand Luke style for the rest of his life. But the red shoes have tied themselves around him just as they have around almost everybody who works in theater. You don't stop. The secret is in accepting that and making sure that you are controlling the shoes that they are not controlling you. But look, I'm addressing not all because there's some gray hair here, but I'm addressing an directly addressing, shall I say, students here. Um, not all of you necessarily want to go into theatre, either as actors, um, stage managers, writers, lyricists, composers, directors, or producers. In my time here as visiting professor, I don't expect that every single person I interact with as we play together has a seared-in, deep-branded vocation to become a theatre professional. Some, some of you might, um, and others I may put off the idea, though not intentionally, uh, after all, this isn't a drama school. One of the perhaps counterintuitive benefits uh, of, of a collegiate university like this uh, is that specifically doesn't have degree courses in drama, uh, is the performing arts um, flower extraordinarily here because of student-run, student-stage-managed, student-directed, and indeed written works presented in a bewildering variety of venues no grown-ups interfering and bossing you around, real people turning up to pay real money to see you, and of course student reviewers writing pathetic and misleading reviews in the Charwell. Um, and if you are one of, uh, if you find that you are one of the ones um, the red shoes lace themselves up around, it will happen almost certainly in your three or four years here, if it hasn't already. Um, learning as you go, talking with like-minded and perhaps most importantly, unlike-minded peers. Dialectic is all in theater. That's how it happened with me. I think it would be a waste of an inaugural address if I um, can, can, I don't think I can dignify it with the word lecture. Um, for me, simply to give a, an autobiographical sketch of how I got to where I am, I've told you about the good fortune to have been in the same year at university um, with uh, Emma Thompson and Hugh Laurie and Tilda Swinton and others and, and to act with them. But my real good fortune was that I was and proudly remain just over six foot tall in my besocked feet and that I have ever been the possessor of a fairly booming voice. Against that side of the scale, I have the grace, musical accomplishments and good looks 
of a one-legged ostrich who's very recently run at great speed into a wall. But if there's one truth about this business we call show, it's that you make your weaknesses your strengths, or attempt to. I only joined the Footlights Club and met up with Hugh Laurie in my last year at university. In my first two, I was an undergraduate wanting to act, surrounded by hundreds of others with similar ambitions, all of them more or less aged between 18 and 22, or there or thereabouts, by definition. We were students. Um, well, the cute and the lithe and the pretty could fight it out for Juliet and Hamlet and Maria from West Side Story or the glamorous boys in another country. But I could sit back and be pretty sure that if there was a role that called for, I don't know what we call it, gravitas, uh, a part that demanded bombast, regal majesty, command, looming maturity, and a damn good boom that could be heard both sides of the cam, then I was in with, as it were, a shout. Um, these quickly became my specialities, as Clint, as um, Harry Callahan says to Hal Holbrook in Magnum Force, you're a good man, Briggs, and a good man always knows his limitations. And to quote from Dirty Harry's intellectual cousin, the late mentored friend Christopher Hitchens, an educated mind is one that understands the limits of its own knowledge. He goes on to say that such a mind will always continue to test those limits, for how else can they be known? You are here to find those limits, and um, may they be stretched and stretched. It would be fatuous of me indeed to come and tell a student audience that they are here simply to accept their limitations. Now, um, and here is the, now and here is the place to find them and stretch them to realize that they have been conquered and that there are now new limitations to stretch and conquer, and so on and so on. None of you is going to leave here fluent in all the world's languages and histories, having solved the Poincaré conjecture and Riemann's hypothesis, and be able to tap dance from here to Cambridge and back while reciting a significant precedents uh, in tort law, simultaneously some bowling top spinners and googlies that would make Shane Warne puke with envy. That's not going to happen. But you will know more than you did know, and than you thought you could know, uh, and you will have thought deeper and in different directions than you ever thought you would, and perhaps you will have discovered things in yourself that you never knew were there. You will know the limits of your knowledge, which may sound like a negative accomplishment, but is in truth the best that a mind can achieve. When I arrived at university, for example, I didn't think I could drink Venus or spirituous liquors, but I discovered, much to my surprise, um, <laughs> that I could, and to quite a high international standard at that. <laughs> Still can, as a matter of fact. More, more germanely, aside from plausible essays, I didn't think I could write, not in a way that um, anyone would ever want to read or perform. I did know that I couldn't sing, and that's one limitation that has never changed. I can say it with vigor and certainty because I've had it from the horse's mouth that I can't sing. I was at the funeral of the great film director, John Schlesinger. Uh, it was held, well, the holiest place on earth is Lord's Cricket Ground, and there's a liberal reform synagogue just opposite, and that's where the funeral took place. Being liberal reform, it wasn't all in Hebrew sung by a cantor. There were plenty of contemporary songs for, for us to join in with. And by very ill luck, I was seated next to Paul McCartney. Um, and every time we stood up to sing, I mimed. Sing, why don't you sing? Why aren't you singing? He said um, uh, uh, the second time this happened. 
well, partly, of course, I was perfectly happy listen, listening to him getting a free Paul McCartney concert. Um, <laughs> but mostly I was miming because I always mime at weddings, at funerals, carol services and such like, because I can't sing and I live in dread at the thought of heads turning when they hear my flat notes discordantly marring a good rousing hymn. Oh, nonsense, everyone can sing, said Paul McCartney. Go on, sing. So I joined in the next verse. After three lines, he nudged me. You're right, you can't sing. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so we've established the proposition um, via Christopher Hitchens that knowing the limits of our knowledge is a sign of an educated mind. Many educated minds, of course, from the pre-Socratic philosophers onwards, have shown us just how limited our knowledge is. If any of you are reading philosophy, then you will know that epistemology, that uh, branch of thinking that specializes in the theory and grounds of knowledge is quite a mortifying subject. Uh, read a primer or two on it and you'll soon become convinced that we know nothing, not the existence of a table, not even of our own selves. But outside that valuable discipline, this ceaseless hunt to find our limits is enthralling, either as a species when we first circumnavigated the world or landed on the moon, or as individuals as we quest to know ourselves better whether we can train harder physically without tearing ligaments, whether we have the kind of brains that are suited to deep scholarship, or, and this is what interests us here today, I hope, uh, what are our limits as live performers or facilitators of live performance in such fields as direction, production design, stage management, lighting, sound, wardrobe, makeup, carpentry, front of house, marketing, merchandising, oh, and the useless one that earns all the money, producing. Um, <laughs> What, uh, <laughs> of course not, um, I expect if Oxford is anything like uh, Cambridge, each college will have its own drama club or society and there will be university-wide ones like Ouds, of course, here, and no doubt um, ad hoc companies that come together for a short spell or two amongst a generation of students, perhaps to showcase the hopes of a group of new writers or just one writer even, or one brand of um, drama makers who wish to strike out in a new style or, um, or, or, or go back to an old one that they think has been wrongly overlooked. Contemporary theatre these days, after all, now includes all kinds of site-specific and utterly new ways of presentation. There's the Punch Drunk Company with its extraordinary manner, or um, the Old Vic Tunnels and the wonderfully named You, Me, Bum Bum Train. Um, one of the greatest theatrical experiences of my life, seeing them. Some of you, being students and curious, might be looking back at the days of um, The Empty Space, early Peter Brook or Grotowski's Theatre of the Poor, um, or Antonin Artaud's Theatre of Cruelty. Um, you may admire the work done by my exact contemporary at university, Simon McBurney. Our birthday is literally just a day apart. His um, Théâtre de Complicité has created new works out of nothing but a suggestion, a whisper of an idea, but also it's mounted classic revivals such as UNESCO's The Chairs um, in ways which confirm my belief, one that I know Simon shares, that a contemporary theatre, which is after all what I'm a professor of for a short while, is one that knows and reverences the theatre of the past, which was after all in its own day contemporary theatre, equally as much as it tries to find new modalities of expression, new milieu, new aesthetics, new ways of showing, and new ways of delighting and dazzling for its own contemporary, soon-to-be-historical age. My friend Bill Goldman, to whom I referred earlier, wrote the definitive book on screenplay writing, indeed one of the definitive books on Hollywood, um, called Adventures in the Screen Trade. In it, he 
coined the phrase, which we always need to remind ourselves of in show business, nobody knows anything. You can assemble the greatest cast available, get the best writer and director, a director who hasn't missed in a decade, and the result could be easily an oven-ready, butterball turkey. You can slam together with a budget of nothing a movie made by a director no one's ever heard of, and the result might be Jaws, um, which has people lined around the block in a way that cinema had never seen before. Nobody knows anything. Even Sir Cameron has had uh, shows that have not been entirely successful. <laughs> Hitchcock, Hitchcock, the peerless Alfred Hitchcock made some truly dreadful movies. The Paradigm Case, have you seen that? The Trouble with Harry? Audia. And that's Hitchcock. Nobody knows anything. Even Shakespeare had his bad moments. The old phrase is, even Homer nods. Um, but his longers in Shakespeare are, are almost intolerable. Probably the only playwright who never wrote a duff line or a duff scene or a duff moment was Anton Chekhov. But none of them and none of you were or will be taught or instructed in the art of the drama. Shakespeare didn't go to drama school. Chekhov didn't go to drama school. He was a doctor. Um, Go to YouTube and you will see how easy it is to be taught the chords of a guitar, uh, the fingering for a keyboard, how to wash and ground a canvas for watercolor, but acting, in fact there are some YouTube acting lessons, admittedly, that do exist, which is so hilarious, so appallingly misconceived and hopeless that you don't know whether to laugh, cry or vomit, so you tend to do all three at once. Why is this? Well, it's partly, um, old cliche as it may be, because it's utterly true that an actor's instrument, uh, paraphernalia, equipment, is his or her whole self, physical and internal, voice, hands, mouth, body, manner, gait, deportment. And while you can teach someone chord scales and bowing, how do you instruct them in their whole being? It's incidentally why nude scenes um, are so difficult in films and on stage. As a species, we are inexplicably, to the philosopher's classic, you know, kind of Martian observing us from outer space, we are inexplicably, bewilderingly hung up about reproduction um, and the bits of our bodies that are involved in reproduction. Such that if you watch, I don't know, Brad Pitt, um, um, say he's playing Sergeant Yeager, a cop in a movie, um, um, and he pays someone for a cup of coffee and you see his hands and those are they are Brad Pitt's hands, but maybe they've got a tattoo on for that particular character. They're, they're Sergeant Yeager's hands. You don't, you don't think about it. it, it he's in his part. Um, and he looks across the room, and those are, those are Jaeger's questing eyes looking at the... And he sees the villain, and then uh, it's Jaeger's legs pumping back and forth as he chases the villain. Uh, but if, if he then goes to his apartment um, and takes off all his clothes and, um, and, and the camera sees him full frontally nude, suddenly the fiction disappears and we're looking at Brad Pitt's penis. It's, 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 it's weird, inexplicable, but it, it's why, you know, it's why nudity is incredibly difficult. Everyone giggles and nudges and says, oh, well, that's what Brad Pitt told you looks like, which they don't say about his hands or about his feet or about anything else. Um, so it's not a modesty or out of shame, but because uh, the moment they are seen um, full frontal, particularly men, I think, the play or fiction stops. Um, but all that aside, drama school might be able to teach you um, 
well, what? Uh, how to fence, which is quite useful if you're a dashing sort of actor or actress. Limited amounts of dance, unless it's a specific musical stage school. How to breathe properly so that your voice doesn't crack after two weeks uh, into the run of a play. Um, and that's about it, really. Uh, which is not to diss drama schools. It's where people obsessed with theater get a chance to make lifelong friendships. They get cut price tickets to see lots of plays. They talk about the art or craft of, of theater, whatever you prefer to call it. They band themselves into knots or sodalities that might form their own little companies and risk putting something on upstairs in a pub. And they get agents and casting directors to the graduating productions, which is all a bit mean because who does the casting for the graduating shows but one of the staff of the school. And if he or she doesn't like you, you'll be carrying a spear and get noticed by no one. In, um, well, we'll be coming to this a little later, but I wrote a play um, when my student days called Latin, and um, um, a producer wanted to put it on in uh, uh, the, the lyric Hammersmith, and I couldn't play the part. There were two, only two parts in it. The audience played the rest of the school, um, and it was because it was set in the school. Um, and they found an actor to play the older master, but they couldn't find the actor to play the one that I'd written really for myself. And they interviewed and interviewed and interviewed. And I eventually said to the producer, I said, look, I know this sounds really pathetic, um, but I was at university with someone who was really good, and he'd just gone to Guildhall. Um, he went to Guildhall to read, um, uh, to study opera, uh, because he has a fantastic singing voice. But he's decided to change to drama, because he's a wonderful actor. And his name is Simon Russell Beale, and, um, who is now, of course, one of the best-known um, uh, actors in Britain, currently playing King Lear. And uh, <laughs> the, the Richard, the producer, went and saw him, and they ad admitted he was terrific, and they wanted to cast him. And Simon was very keen to play the part. And Tony Church, who ran the Guildhall at the time, splendid man, one of the founders of the Royal Shakespeare Society, nothing to say against him. But he did say, well, if Simon wants to play the part, I certainly won't stand in his way. I see it's a good opportunity for him to get his equity card and that um, um, people will come and see him. But uh, we're covering Chekhov at the moment, and I am duty-bound to warn him that if he does do the rehearsals and, and, and um, do the play, it will, it's going to leave a heck of a hole in his Chekhov technique. It's going to leave a heck of a hole in his Chekhov technique. He really meant that. As it is, <laughs> Simon went on to win uh, a Laurence Olivier Award for his uncle Vanya, um, <laughs> despite this hole in his Chekhov technique. You said to an actor, you know, this idea that he would suddenly perhaps go to the RSC, as indeed he did, and appear in plenty of Shakespeare plays, and then suddenly it was time for Three Sisters, and he was going to play Vashinin or something, and at the read-through, all the other actors would turn to, e turn to each other and go, there's an awful hole in his Chekhov technique. <laughs> It's, it's that that gives drama schools a bad name. <laughs> but as I say, the good thing about them is that they, they give those who know what, not want to go to university or who want to sort of top up on, on, on full 24-hour theater talk and discussion and heat and light um, uh, can, can, can enjoy that. But you'll get a lot more experience in being in a play as a director or an actor if you're at a university like Oxford or Cambridge, you could collegiate university where you, you can do, as I did, nearly 30 um, in my three years. 
And I always thought I would be a marvelous actor. Um, my only experience up until the age of 14 was uh, Mrs. Higgins in My Fair Lady at prep school. It's a non-singing role, of course. And uh, Mr. Brownlow in Oliver, also non-singing. Um, uh, the former got me my first press review from the Dursley Times in Gloucestershire, as a matter of fact, which was near my prep school. Uh, Stephen Fry's Mrs. Higgins would grace any Belgravia drawing room, um, which puzzled me because I thought Belgravia was the capital of Yugoslavia. And, and, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, it was explained that it was actually a compliment. Um, and on the strength of that and my Uncle Zed in uh, Salad Days, a reference only Cameron will pick up on, I suspect, um, uh, at drinks parties during the holidays, in that way that one does, when an adult approached me and said, so then, young man, what are you going to be when you grow up? I would always answer, I'm going to be an actor. Uh, my mother, a practical woman who knew um, the theatrical profession was crowded, to say the least, uh, gave me Six Great Advocates by Norman Burkitt and suggested that being a barrister was a bit like being an actor, darling, only so much safer and actually really more exciting. Um, so for two or three years, I did tell people that I was going to be a barrister when they asked me what, what I was going to do, and they said, jolly good, jolly good. Um, but underneath my black judicial socks, red ribbons had already begun to wind. There was a period at school when the careers officer asked me what sort of job I had in mind, and I said, theatre. He said, no, but seriously. Uh, <laughs> so I said, in retaliation, I said, well, um, I want... I want a job where you don't have to know anything or work hard and where you're basically paid for talking nonsense and it's just, you just, it's just a sinecure. And he said, well, where do you imagine you'd find a job like that? And I said, well, I, I imagine being a school's advisory. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> that got me into a lot of trouble. But anyway, um, throughout my teens, I did write, but almost all poetry um, and some radio dramas, which I still have, uh, but I never dared send them in to the BBC. But the good luck that set me on my course of becoming a writer and a performer happened once I'd settled in at the other place, uh, at the other place, Cambridge. Um, Corpus Christi College there. Do you have a Corpus Christi? I'll never forget it. Do you have a Christ? Do you have a Corpus as well? Yes. I mean, lots of Jesuses, aren't there? Do you know Isaac Wolfson is the only other man apart from Jesus to have a college in each, each, each university? I think that's rather pleasing. And as a Jew, I think I'm proud of the fact that they're both Jewish as well. I think. Um, anyway, there'll be a Fry College in each, each university one day. Um, so anyway, the, the Corpus Christi College, where, where, the one where Christopher Marlowe went, um, had, a, had a strange L-shaped room which was used for nothing but the storage of uh, broken chairs and a dead piano. And two enterprising young under, undergraduates, Mark McCrum and Caroline Alton, got permission to convert this space into an adaptable little theater. Uh, which was called, and still is, um, um, the Playroom. Um, not one of us were members of Corpus, as it happens, um, though oddly, Mark's father became master of it two years later. Uh, that was just a coincidence. Uh, they just saw the opportunity and they grabbed it. The idea was that only new plays written by undergraduates should be performed in it. Someone wrote a very good Pinter parody, so good that we all secretly theorized that Pinter had sent it in under a student's name. Um, I played, for the first but not last time, Oscar Wilde in a play called Have You Seen the Yellow Book? And then blow me down if Caroline and Mark didn't ask if I would write a play myself for the playroom. And I, I was just coming to the end of my first year, and already I'd been in at least 12 plays around Cambridge, including, including the ones at this new playroom. I'd been lunchtime plays, matinees, main house evening plays, late night shows. When not doing them, I was running between colleges, rehearsing for the next clutch of plays I was in. 
Um, I was due to go up to play Oedipus uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe. They said about that production, the better. The director wanted us all to look as if we came from another planet, so we were wrapped in orange lighting gel um, and crinkled like a thousand toffee wrappers every time we moved. But, but before August in Edinburgh, there was a good stretch of time um, of, of long vac, so I, I went home and I got out my adored Hermes typewriter and an A4 pad, or actually more likely in those days, an Oxford block, as it was called. I don't know if they still exist, um, um, but they, they predated A4 pads and Celsius and kiloliters and hectares. Isn't it odd that the acre is an anagram of hectare? I mean, something's going on, you sometimes feel, in this world, don't you? Um, anyway, um, so I um, used in those days to write when I did write in, in, in longhand on, on a pad and then, uh, and then type it up on, uh, on the typewriter. I hadn't been given a subject um, for this commission, but I got the feeling they wanted something funny from me because... I was one much given to jokes, quips, imitations, parodies, pastiches, badinage, and like entertainment. In other words, a tick. Um, <laughs> so when facing the empty page, I didn't know much. But some, perhaps I had a glimmering that I should know my limitations, because I did resolve to write about something, a world, that I really knew. People confuse imagination and fantasy, which is a very dire mistake. Imagination is entering the mind and heart and soul of another, imagining their pain, their aspirations, their hopes. Imagination is not saying, on the planet, hobtittle, the rebel forces were venting their port nacelles, ready for the great intergalactic flower dance or whatever. That's fantasy and is nothing to do with imagination at all. It doesn't involve imagination. It can be very good when it's human and um, it involves real human emotions, but it isn't imagination to think of a new planet or a new culture or a new idea. Imagination um, can be simply to describe what it's like to be an old woman in the way that Alan Bennett does, or um, in any example in fiction um, that you can think of. Um, so I didn't want to use fantasy and write about something I didn't know. I wanted to use imagination. My old German algebra teacher has to say he was German. He didn't teach me German algebra. There is such a thing. Um, always used to say when I was struggling with a quadratic equation, write down what you know. Um, and so I, uh, what I knew was school. Um, I knew more than most because I'd been expelled from more schools than anyone else my age or weight in, in, in my county. And uh, after making a recovery from prison, um, which is a whole other story, I had got a job in my gap year teaching um, at a prep school, following in the footsteps of my great heroes, W.H. Auden and Evelyn Waugh. Um, in my case, this was a prep school in North Yorkshire. So I knew about the eccentricities, uh, the ferment of, of frustrated desires and hypocrisies, or the dismal cynicism and forced sarcasm that wreathed about such places like stale pipe smoke. In fact, a pipe was the first thing I bought when I got the job at the prep school. I was closer in age to the oldest boy at the school and to the next youngest master. So uh, I thought if I had a pipe clamped between my teeth, it might make me look mature. Um, uh, all that happened was that my nickname was Towering Inferno. <laughs> so, so back home, composing this play, I liked the idea of um, the audience being treated as if they were the class. Um, so the piece began with me handing back prep, prep, I mean, no, homework, hurling exercise books at the audience. and. Um, 
directly addressing them by name. Uh, um, um, and um, uh, it was all quite riotous and fun. And then the, ha the house lights were up. And, and, um, and then there was a knock at the door, and the house lights go down. And the other actor comes in, and the audience is suddenly the audience, not the class. And uh, this happens twice. It was only a one-act play, really. But it, it did cause, though I say so myself, quite a sensation um, when I finally got back from the doomed Oedipus, and we went to the playroom at, at Cambridge to mount it. Latin or Tobacco and Boys, it was called. The subtitle being filched from a remark of Marlowe's, he that loveth not tobacco and boys cannot be trusted. I think we can all fall behind him on that. I think we can all wag our fingers uh, together on, on that one. Um, autre temps, autre meur. I and the actor who played the other schoolmaster were asked to do the play again and all over Cambridge until it was time for Edinburgh to come round once more, and we took and performed Latin there, where it happily uh, won a fringe first prize and some acclaim as a kind of success scandal, mostly due to the fact we had lines like, um, boys who rub me up the wrong way, Elwyn Jones, come to a sticky end. Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly, I know. I, well, I was young, come on, forgive me. Um, so, returning then from Edinburgh for my third and final year, I stood at something of a crossroads, it's hard to believe, but I entered Cambridge with the highest expectations of getting a first, uh, writing a PhD in some field of Shakespearean studies, and then quietly growing tweed in the corner of a college somewhere. In fact, in other words, being Jonathan Bates. But um, since I had only attended four lectures, two of them not on English literature at all, um, and handed in about five essays in my entire two years, uh, it was clear that the life academic was not for me. But while I was having a tremendous time playing warty old kings who blessed the happy couple at the end of Act Five, or drunken half-pay majors, poisoner uncles, and so forth, I was fully aware that out there in the monstrous place that they call the real world, actors who were actually 40 and 50 were going to be the ones cast as benevolent uncles or rascally lawyers, and that I would emerge from Cambridge about as uncastable as a person could be. Absurdly tall, bent nose, and thin as a rake. Yes, I was genuinely very, very thin. Um, anyway, the beginning of my last year, Emma Thompson came around to my rooms and dragged me over to meet Hugh Laurie, whom I had met once before. He'd come to see Latin, and it hadn't really said much more than, hello. Um, and jolly good. Um, and he was now the president of Footlights, and he wanted someone to write and perform with. And there was Emma, and I, I added Tony Slattery and begged Simon Beale, as he then was, Simon Russell Beale, to join us, but his heart was too set on proper acting, which, as you know, he achieved despite having no Chekhov technique. So Hugh and I sat down and wrote sketches from the first five minutes of Emma taking me to his rooms in Selwyn. We were hard at it writing, and we didn't really stop for 15 years. It was a perfectly extraordinary kind of comic love affair, really, that, was, that exists to this day, that was just the most remarkable good fortune. But from having been in about 30 plays in two years, I, I moved to the Footlights Panto, which is a traditional um, Michaelmas term event, and the, the Footlights Lent term late night review and the Footlights May Week review, uh, which after a week at Cambridge came here to the Oxford Playhouse and then to Edinburgh. To say that everything thereon was a breeze would be revolting, but embarrassingly true. Um, I wish I could tell you long tales of garret attic poverty, months of eating nothing but pot noodles and drinking white lightened cider, but um, it wasn't. I was uh, di dining at the 
Escargot, which was a fashionable restaurant there, and drinking good claret from the first year of leaving Cambridge. Um, so what's the secret, you may want to know, and maybe that's the, what you expect me to give. Um, well, firstly, knowing that the red shoes had twined themselves around me um, and that there was no escape, um, I think gave me confidence. Um, secondly, in my case, it was writing. It was writing for myself and for others. Uh, who else is going to write for you when you're starting out in this career? Nobody. So you write for yourself. Um, what gives you the confidence to write for yourself? Well, really, the fact that you're writing for yourself, not anybody else. You wouldn't really have much confidence in writing for another actor, because you couldn't necessarily trust they would understand what you meant, unless you got very experienced. But if you're writing for yourself, monologues or two-handers with, with someone else, like Hugh, then it gives you an enormous head start in life. And if you think about it in musical terms, it's true as well. David Bowie and Elton John, for example, are the legends they are because they wrote their own songs. They didn't ask and wait for someone else to write for them. And that's why they have endured permanently, through the Beatles, of course, and all the other greats in, this, in the music world. So all seemed to be going very well. I'd been uh, on in the West End for the first revival of Alan Bennett's play 40 years on. Um, and while on stage, I was writing the book, i.e. the dialogue and structure of a musical, Me and My Girl, which happily ran for years in the West End and on Broadway, and is still being played in half a dozen or so t different territories to this day. Blackadder happened, uh, followed by a bit of Fry and Laurie and Jeeves and Worcester. Uh, I was in a long and happy run of a Simon Gray play called The Common Pursuit then in a TV drama he wrote for me called Old Flames. But as P.G. Woodhouse liked to point out, it's just when the sun is shining at its brightest and all looks well with the world that you can be sure fate is lurking around the corner, quietly slipping the horseshoe into the boxing glove. In 1995, after 15 years of frankly astounding, excessive and extraordinary luck, catastrophe, uh, another play by Simon Gray, this one was called Cellmates. It opened on a Thursday evening. By Sunday morning, I'd driven to a cross-channel ferry and was speeding through Belgium like a thing possessed. Anything to get away as far as possible from London, England, the theater, the theater world. I had an image of my head of going up through northern Germany to Denmark, right to the top of Denmark, um, stopping off at a village there, buying a thick white, white polar neck and a pipe, uh, growing a beard and teaching English at a school and founding a whole new movement in Danish poetry. Um, what had gone wrong? Um, I'd thrown myself into the world of writing and performance with such vigor that I hadn't even had sex for 15 years. Um, but I was enjoying myself. I was, the, the, the Red Shoes had danced me around every aspect of the world of performance and writing. I'd written novels and journalism and... and plays and film scripts and um, musicals, as I say, and performed in all kinds of TV and stage and film dramas. Um, it was all a hell of a mess. Um, I'm glad that most of the students here are too young to be able to remember it, but unfortunately, those older probably will. Um, it was um, uh, always called, <laughs> still people say to me, uh, that was around the time of the Soulmates, debacle, wasn't it? And so, um, it was uh, the beginning of the internet age, as it happened, and I hid myself away for about seven months, um, wrote my own website, which I'd proudly say won the Lipton Ice 
cool page of the year. Um, and I considered the possibility of teaching again. I came close to accepting an offer from a Canadian university to being a, a writer in residence teaching creative writing. Um, but you can't do that when you're wearing those damned red shoes. Um, so I slowly returned to London, and before I knew it, I'd been cast as Oscar Wilde in, uh, for a new film, and I was back on track, busier than ever. That's another phrase, back on track. Isn't it strange? Um, people sometimes, when they mention the soulmate, Jay Barclay say, because you, you went off the rails a bit, didn't you? And, um, and I always say to them, yes, it, it's awful being on rails. It was thrilling to go off them for a while. Because who wants to, hands up, who wants to be on rails? Isn't it strange? So, and then I use the phrase, back on track, as if, as if in fact, that's how one's life should be. But um, I suppose we're used to that. Um, all my life, since I've been a teenager, um, I've been set on the theatre and acting and writing. And that's the thing you really have to remember, that although it seems very lucky what happened to me, and it was very lucky, certain alchemic kind of reactions to other people, it, luck can happen to different people, and if they're not prepared for it, it will be meaningless. It'd be lucky to be spotted by a football coach if you're playing in the park, but you will have been playing for all of your life and you will be extremely good. Um, and I had been obsessed with acting and writing since I was a child. I had read David Magashak's translation of Stanislavski's Being an Actor dozens of times, um, as well as all of the great Cicely Berry books on the voice and how to use it and um, voice and the actor. So I had learned about correct diaphrag diaphragmatic intercostal rib reserve breathing. Um, and I knew something of what was called the method, Stanislavski's The Method. And as I say, people who become professional footballers uh, um, tend to have watched every match of the day every single um, Saturday and consumed every newspaper back page every day and kicked a ball around every chance they can get. They don't suddenly consider the idea of being a footballer. Their boots are much like red shoes. So my fantasizing about being an academic in Canada was about as realistic as deciding to open the bowling for England um, out of nowhere or joining Oasis. Um, my fate had been sealed for good or ill um, since I was about 12. And talking of age, and this is an interesting thing about acting and one that we'll come to when I hope when I start work with students, is um, there's a moment where Stanislavski um, and this captivated me so much because it was so blindingly obvious and yet so extraordinarily revealing. Um, he asks a pupil to become a very old man, a professor, and to cross the stage. The pupil obliges by hobbling across the stage. <laughs> and um, Stanislavski um, says to him, mm. he, says, mm. he says, an artist paints what he sees. Most painters who are not artists are too afraid to paint what they see, so they paint what they think should be there. You have walked across the stage like an actor wishing to suggest age, but haven't you noticed that old people walk in a sprightly, almost jerkingly upright and brisk manner because being old and infirm is the last message they wish to convey? That's how old people walk. <laughs> and in the same way, of course, 
if you wanted to play a 17-year-old, you would probably just grab God, because you're so tired and bored and you know everything. Um, it seems, as I say, very obvious, and yet it's, it's surprising, because you have to observe. So when I come back to Oxford to start work, well, I, mean, I should say play, um, we will form a group, and amongst other things, we will look at exactly those issues. The butchest man amongst you will be asked to play a dainty female, not in a clichéic way, but, but through observation, and the most delicate woman to play a rugby player. Um, it's always surprising and exciting to see what happens when you ask an actor to think really, really hard about what they're playing, to imagine, and also to stop acting. Because what that actor who was hobbling was doing was what he thought actors were supposed to do, which was to register and to give some impression. If ever you're on a film set, you'll always hear directors saying, would you stop acting, please? <laughs> and you always find that the great, the, the great actors on screen, in particular, are always the ones you never, ever catch acting. In which case, you think, well, what's the point? What, what are they doing, just saying the lines? No, they're not. They're fully immersed in, in the business of acting, but, but such that you don't notice. But there are different aesthetics. Um, the two great Vs in painting, Vermeer and, and Van Gogh, as, as a Dutchman would call him, but Van Gogh, as we call him. Um, one of them, every brushstroke is visible. You can almost smell and hear the anger and the fury behind the, the paintwork. Um, and in the other, it is totally invisible. It's, it's almost a photograph. They're both viable aesthetics. You wouldn't say one was better or greater than the other. They're utterly different. Anton Walbrook, who was from an Austrian-German express, expressionist tradition, from, which from the very earliest days of cinema, in which cinema was invented essentially by Pabst and Fritz Lang and, and, and other such great, great directors, um, they, they gave out acting in the same way that Van Gogh gave out painting. And others give out performances in the way that Vermeer gives out painting. But we'll find together, those of us who work or play together, um, what it is that makes... I, I, I could do that any time I want, by the way. Um, um, but together, most, um, uh, mostly you will also write, I hope, um, and perform something for our own and perhaps the college's or the university's delectation and delight. Um, I can't promise, as I've said, to furnish you with automatic careers or skills, but I hope I will be able to give you confidence um, and that those amongst you um, who have had the ribbons tied round your ankles, we will find a way to control the dance such as your feet don't bleed. In Shakespeare's day, actors were more commonly known as players and his works of course, were known as plays too. So we will play. And if ever I feel that I have pushed, pushed you too hard or embarrassed you such that the pleasure has gone, I will smack myself across the face, apologize, and start again. Because it's not about humiliation. It's not about making people feel self-conscious. It's about actually getting rid of self-consciousness and making people feel happy and confident in what they're doing. Otherwise, it stops being play. Um, I wish it could be all of you who apply, as it were, to be part of our little pack. But Oxford is a large university and Katz is a large enough college. 
uh, we will be a group of about 12 to 14 maximum. Um, any more in concentration and friendship would be too hard. Um, if you're not chosen, don't fear. In my second year at Cambridge, I was the president of a drama club called The Mummers, um, and we noticed in 1980, uh, was, in fact, it was the 50th anniversary of the founding of the club, so I wrote a letter to the great Alastair Cook, of letter from America fame, um, um, who had founded The Mummers. Um, I just literally wrote a letter that said, Alastair Cook, BBC, New York, USA. Um, and it's, it got there, and I got a reply. But I wrote, Dear Mr. Cook, um, you may not remember, but in 1930, you founded a drama club called The Mummers in Cambridge. You might be pleased to know that we're still going strong. In fact, we won more fringe firsts last year in Edinburgh than any other university drama club. We are celebrating our half century with a dinner at Trinity Hall sometime next term. If there was any chance of your being in England then, would you um, do us the honor of being our, our, our guest? And he wrote back, Dear Mr. Fry, I have no plans to be in Britain this year at all. But things can change, and your letter has delighted me. Let me know a date, and I shall be there. And at the dinner, he told a story about the founding of the, of the Mummers, which was uh, notorious because it was the first Cambridge Drama Club to allow women to participate. Previous to that, delicate young Etonians had played Desdemonia um, uh, or Juliet, and, and the idea that women should consort on the stage with male undergraduates was considered outrageous. Cook and his number two, Michael Redgrave, had gone to the mistresses of Newnham and Girton, the two um, women's colleges, and persuaded them that they were serious hommes de théâtre and that no harm should come to their girls if they acted together on stage at the same time. There were vast queues for auditions for the first play that the mummers put on, and one young man read for Alistair Cook. Thank you, said Cook, um, and what do you do? I'm a Jesus reading architecture. Well, thank you. I'm sure you'll make a wonderful architect, but I'm afraid I don't think we can find a place for you here. And the man he sent away with a flea in his ear was James Mason, who went on to become one of the greatest <laughs> British film stars of all time, and Mason never, ever let him forget it. Uh, <laughs> um, so if I overlook you, I fully expect in 10 or 15 years to get a tap on the shoulder from a huge acting star who says... You probably don't, oh look, that's come up. It's, I think that means time's up, as it is anyway. Uh, it says, you probably don't remember, um, but um, you didn't include me in your um, visiting group. Have I just started? Something, <laughs> something is going to go through the entire keynote. <laughs> that's, that's weird. Um, anyway, um, I am <laughs> about to finish. Um, uh, this is a really strong hint, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> It's a short of a gong. Uh, anyway, I, I literally am on my last paragraph, so fear not. I, in fact, my next words written down are, I have gone on long enough. Um, this address hasn't really said more than this. Theatre is about commitment and vocation. You can't escape it. Here at university, it can start as a hobby, something else to do, but you will know if the red shoes have wound themselves around you, and there will be no option but to dance on and on. It's work, yes, but as Noel Coward said, work is more fun than fun. So when I return, won't we have fun? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, I didn't. No, I went on. There we go.
So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've got some time now, a few minutes, to, uh, to grill Stephen. By the way, I think it must have been you leaning on the mouse that was... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so much my technical yeah. prowess. <laughs> so, questions from the floor. Right, Clint, fair enough. <clears throat> You're very shy, there's that hand waving over there. I was just wondering, um, uh, what's Mark Rylance like? <laughs> How does he? Uh, well, um, um, he's referring, um, the gentleman's referring to Mark Rylance, who, if you're not a theatre girl, may not mean much to you, but if you are a theatre girl, you'll probably know he's probably the greatest um, theatre actor in, in the English speaking world, certainly regarded so by most of the peers of his profession. I've just spent the last four and a half months working with him. Um, he, in an all-male production of Twelfth Night, I played Malvolio, and he played Olivia. Um, he also played Richard III in, in, in the second of the two plays that we'd rep together. And we, before that, we'd done a run at the Apollo in the West End, and obviously weakened the ceiling somewhat. Um, and, <laughs> and before that, we'd opened it at the Globe, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in, in the open air. And Mark Rylance, is a, he's an act of nature. It's very hard to explain. Um, he is a simply phenomenal actor. He's a very good example of how, how one people grow as actors. He was uh, the same rather year as um, John Sessions and, um, and um, Kenneth Branagh. And Kenneth Branagh shot out of rather like a, like a cannon, uh, like a, a ball out of a cannon, um, straight into national fame with another country, and then his Henry V at the um, Royal Shakespeare Company, which he then made into a film. And uh, um, Mark Rylance, um, people didn't particularly notice. He seemed, yeah, he's okay, he's fine. And he was the first artistic director of, of the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre when it finally opened in 1906, I think, um, So he developed an, um, a, a way of doing Shakespeare that suited the Globe um, extremely well. And suddenly people noticed he was an extraordinary actor, particularly a, a comic actor as well. He, he played in Boeing, Boeing, the, the American farce, which you may know as the film with Tony Curtis, which won him a Tony on Broadway. And he played in Joe's Butterfield's extraordinary play, Jerusalem, um, which uh, also won him a Tony on Broadway. A lot of Americans in the audience going, what's this got to do with Jerusalem already? But <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, his character there, um, um, Rooster Byron, one of the great um, creations on, of stage of, of our time. What's he like? He's an incredibly charming man, um, like most great actors, um, mad as a box of frogs. Um, he waves, I mean, he won't mind me saying this, he, he waves incense bags of herbs right behind the back of the stage. And, and um, talks about energies and spirits and things like that. And, and, and I overlook that because he's brilliant. <laughs> and he's a generous actor. He doesn't, um, he doesn't soak the stage up for himself. Um, so, yeah, if you get a chance to see him, go. One over that. Yep. Oh, sorry, thank you. Could you say a few words about your um, production of The Importance of Being Earnest? Well, yes, I could. Um, and yet, also, I sort of can't. 
in as much as, unfortunately, it has been, um, it has been stayed uh, for reasons that I can't go into that are deeply, they're both personal and very public. Um, I couldn't accede to the request of the producers to direct the play under the circumstances in which they wanted me to do it, which makes you yearn to know more. And I will, <laughs> I will gossip at dinner, I dare say, with one or two people about why it is. But if I said it, it would become a national headline that would embarrass everybody. Um, I would love to produce and play um, um, uh, you know, Lady Bracknell one day in, in The Imports of Being Honest. Um, it's a funny thing, um, Cameron will know this as a great theatre owner, but more theatres were built in London during the late Victorian, early Edwardian era that had been built in Britain or indeed Europe um, for the past thousand years in a huge, extraordinary period of British theatre going. And yet, almost no play written in that time is worth seeing. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? The importance of being honest is the only masterpiece that comes from that period until we get slightly later into the period of Bernard Shaw and Ibsen and so on. It's a very, very odd thing. Um, but the importance of being honest remains, uh, as does Oscar Wilde, something very, uh, something that I loved. I mean, I began this career of loving theatre and loving writing, um, partly because, I think, it was a pre-technical age, and I lived in the middle of the country. I mean, really, I'm talking about the middle of the country. Miles, <laughs> the great Sidney Smith, um, uh, who is a, a wit and a divine, um, uh, been translated to a new um, living, a new, a new rectory or, or vicarage somewhere. And, and, and he wrote to one of his correspondents, Lady Wortley Montague, I think it was, um, you say, how is it here? I think I can best describe it as saying that I'm simply miles from the nearest lemon. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was definitely miles from the nearest lemon in the middle of Norfolk. Um, but we had this, um, we had this little pantechnicum, this little strange van that came around every, every other Thursday uh, to the corner of a lane about half a mile of the house, which was a mobile library. And um, the Sunday before, I'd lain on my stomach in the kitchen of the house. It's a big old kitchen. Uh, whereas in the corner was a small black and white television, which was the only television my father would consider having. And my mother put next to it a cartoon she'd cut out from a Sunday newspaper that said, it was an early color television, but it's since faded. <laughs> um, and uh, I watched this film, The Importance of Being Earnest, the one directed by Anthony Asquith with Michael Redgrave and, uh, um, uh, and the fantastic cast of Dorothy Tutin and um, Joan Greenwood and Michael Dennison, Miles Mallison, um, Margaret Rutherford, I won't keep going, sorry. And uh, anyway, I had, um, I had never seen this play before, and I, I can remember Whenever you see something for the first time that is brilliant, you remember huge chunks of it. If you watch something that's terrible, even the second time, you've forgotten it, every part of it. And I remember going to my mother, because I'd heard the line after the film, and I said, Mother, would you be in any way offended if I said that you seem to me to be in every way the visible personification of absolute perfection? <laughs> <laughs> I beg your pardon. Said, and I said, that was a line that was said in a film I just watched. And she said, what was it? I said, it was called The Importance of Being Honest. She said, oh, The Importance of Being Honest. I said, oh, do you know it? She said, oh, yes, of course, darling, it's a classic. I said, have we got it in the house? And she said, I'll have, um, have a look. And unfortunately, I didn't have it. It was mostly full of my father's scientific books and her history books. Um, so when the library came around, I went to the Bicardigan lady um, who, 
who was there when the steps had been let down by the driver, and I got on and I said, um, um, do you have The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde? He said, well, no, no, let's have a look. Unfortunately, at the bottom of the list of plays were the complete works, uh, the complete plays of Oscar Wilde. Lady Windermere's fan and the, uh, uh, and the um, you know, uh, oh, and the other two. <laughs> and um, <laughs> a, wo a woman of no importance and, and, so, and, 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 <laughs> and the other one. And um, uh, so I, I, read, I read them and I read them and I read them and I read them until I knew it off by heart. I knew, I knew the importance of being, uh, being honest off by heart. I still do, I think. Did you hear what I was playing on the piano just now, Lane? Begins. I didn't think it polite to listen, so I'm sorry for that. I, uh, I don't play the piano accurately. Anyone can play accurately, but uh, I play with wonderful expression. As far as the piano is concerned, sentiment is my forte, and so on. Anyway, um, <laughs> I uh, and I went back the next Thursday after and returned the book, stamped it back in, and said, "Do you have any other works by Oscar Wilde?" He said, "Well, let's see, dear." Um, and um, there was the complete works of Oscar Wilde. So I got that, and I kept that for about six weeks. And I read all his essays and all these things like that. It was absolutely fascinating by the moment. I found it extraordinary. Um, his, his serious play, well, there's only one Vera or the Nihilist, the first tragedy he tried to write. And the amazing essays and the extraordinary fairy tales for children. And then I went back and I said, do you have any, any books about him? And she looked at me and she said, how old are you? I was 12, and I said, oh, I'm 16. And unfortunately, being sort of tall enough, she sort of, and she said, well, hmm, she looked a bit odd. She'd obviously knew there was something a bit iffy about Oscar. Um, and there was a book called The Trials of Oscar Wilde by Old Montgomery Hyde. So I took out this book, and, and I read with a faster and faster beating heart the story of this rise and tragic downfall of this extraordinary man. And um, it, it stayed with me forever the quality he had and his works had, but also it set me on a path of reading that never stopped, because I realized I was cut from the same cloth as Oscar, that we were both, both of the same nature, as he would put it, um, and it made me feel more confident that someone so great could be like me, and I started bicycling into Norwich 12 miles away and reading and reading books that were related, about people related to Oscar Wilde and then people connected and connected in other different ways. And it was through that, I think, that I developed my love of English literature that got me into Cambridge despite the appalling behavioral activities that got me expelled from so many schools and eventually landed me in prison. So I have everything to thank Oscar for. And I think he made me um, the man I am for, for good or ill. He gave me the love of language and the, um, the just the, the deep love of theater too. Very long answer, I'm sorry. No, no, it's good for it. uh, Michael Codron, the last question. That, you know, it's, again, it's a terrible cliche, but we, we learn more from our failures than our successes. And, and I don't think anybody in theatre is ashamed of their failures. Um, I don't think you are, Cameron, I'm sure. No, I call them my school fees. Your school fees, exactly. Um, you know, um, and because, as Bill Goldman said, nobody knows anything. We're bound to have failures, all of us. We're bound to have um, bring out books or have be in TV series or uh, be in plays that have runs that are indecently short. The notices go up very, very quickly. Audiences stay away. Um, but um, unless one has really, really let oneself down through laziness um, and non-commitment 
um, or being drunk on stage, for example, um, then I don't think one never, never, ever needs to be ashamed of a failure. And I'll, I'll just end because he only died a few weeks ago, and I had the honor of being asked to speak about it because it happened in a matinee, uh, or at least the news came through in a matinee in New York, that my, a man I had the pleasure of directing, Sir Peter O'Toole, um, Peter O'Toole, I think he turned down the knighthood, didn't he? Um, uh, had died, and so I, after the after the production of Twelfth Night closed, I just went to the audience and said, "You, you probably won't have heard, but um, one of the greatest actors in the world, great Irish actor Peter O'Toole, died just now." And there was a great moan of agony from the audience. And uh, I said, um, there are two stories I'll tell you about him, which are vaguely germane to this production, or at least the idea that we've been at a matinee and, 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 and that the, our sister play is Richard III. And one was that he came on stage as Richard III, quite abominably drunk. And the, the first words of Richard III are not difficult for most people to know. Now is the winter of our discontent, may glorious summer by this summer, son of York. And he came on and said, now is the wind uh, prompt. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and someone in the audience shouted out, Mr. O'Toole, you are drunk. And O'Toole went down the audience and he said, that's nothing. You wait till you see the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> Fantastic line. And uh, the, the, other, the other one was where just one afternoon he was uh, at lunchtime, he was... Um, he was drinking at the Coach and Horses in Soho, and um, and like a lot of drinkers, you know, he made his, his new best friend, which is just the person sitting at the bar stool next to him. And in those days, uh, British pubs had strict licensing hours, and the barman rang the bell and said, "Time, gentlemen, please, two thirty. And uh, and Peter said to his new best friend, "So, what should we do? What should we do?" He said, "Tell you what, let's go down Shaftesbury Avenue. It's, it's a Wednesday afternoon. There might be a matinee on." And so they went down, they just saw the end of a queue going into a theatre, and they, they followed it, bought a couple of tickets and sat down, started watching. And Peter said, this is very good, isn't it? And then and, uh, they came to a new scene, and Peter said, oh, you don't like this scene, this is where I come on. Oh, shit! <laughs> so, if nothing else, theatre is a great repository of, uh, of storytelling because it's filled with great characters. Anyway, thank you all so much. Stephen, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.